Okay, so images for the Christian life. We like to use things like walk. How's your walk? Uh, How's your relationship to God? Uh, Those kind of things. Joshua gives you a different image, more of a quest. It's not like this linear journey from point A to point B. It's uh, staggered. It stops and starts. It goes north and south and then back to the west and back to the north and to the east and to the west and the east and the north and the south. The way that life actually goes. The Christian life, as it's lived out most commonly in the Bible, is not a story like, say, Cinderella, where there's a clear, what you'd call like a narrative arc to it, like most great stories. You've got this girl, and then things are going well for her, and then there's a villain introduced, and then after that, something else bad happens, and so there's tension and conflict, but at the end of the day, uh, she and the prince, they, they figure it out. Okay, that's the way that a lot of stories go. This is different. This is a little more like Lord of the Rings, where you are going from place to place, and there's battles and dragons and fire and, and, and hobbits and crazy stuff. Joshua is a completely different book, and it is really the sequel to the book of Exodus. So as we kind of go through this, let's remember that wisdom drips to us from the pages of Scripture, and each of those snapshots that we get from the Bible, whether it's the way, the walk, the relationship, all of that stuff matters, and it's good. Joshua gives us a very important, different kind of snapshot of what life in Christ is like. This morning, as we begin the new series, uh, let me suggest that our generation particularly needs to hear this afresh, because everything gets very personal. It's always about me and God, my relationship to God, my walk with God. This is a book that's very much about the people of God, and how we fit into that picture, and how my walk with God impacts the walk of God in other, you know, the other people's walks with God, that we actually are a community. And so what one person does within the context of the community actually bears out on the lives of other people, on God's favor with his people, or lack of favor with his people. So as we go into Joshua, let me give you just a couple of background things so we can kind of catch up here. I know some of us are, have been in the faith a very long time, you know, oh, Joshua, I know Joshua, yeah. Yeah, Josh, as I like to call him. We all know Joshua, right? Well, not everybody does, and I'm willing to bet that there are a lot of things in the book of Joshua that you either forgot were there or you never noticed were there. And we're going to hopefully hit some of those as we go. So again, Joshua is kind of the sequel of the book of Exodus. So it comes immediately after the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible, and in many ways kind of completes its story. So in order to understand the story, you kind of got to set the stage by going back to Moses, who was right before Warren Worsby, uh, preacher and commentator, notes, a wise leader doesn't completely abandon the past but builds on it as he or she moves toward the future. Moses is mentioned 57 times in the book of Joshua, evidence that Joshua respected Moses and what he had done for Israel. So it begins with Moses. Remember, God's people are in slavery. They're crying out to God. God raises up Moses to help deliver them. Joshua was a slave in Egypt. He was a boy, and he experienced the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery by God's hand and the promise of this great land, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey that Israel would be able to call their own. Joshua actually went part of the way up the mountain with Moses when he goes up to get the Ten Commandments. He is Moses' wingman. He's rookie of the year. He's, he's this young guy that Moses is kind of training, that he realizes he kind of got a similar heart in him. 
And so Joshua, he says, hey, come with me. He goes up about halfway, and then, you know, the mountain's shaking and smoking and all this stuff, and God only wants Moses up there. So Joshua kind of stays and waits. He was one of 12 spies that are sent to scope out the promised land. So you may remember, he goes, and 10 of them look, and they go, oh, man, these people are so big. You can't believe how big these people are. We'll never be able to beat them. So 10 of the 12 say that. The gentleman by the name of Caleb and this young whippersnapper named Joshua see it the other way. Yeah, we can beat them. If God's on our side, why wouldn't we be able to? Now, Joshua would end up needing all the strength and the courage that he could get. The land he was taking or was called to take was a beautiful land, flowed with milk and honey, occupied by well-armed, very large people, we're told, who did not fear the Lord. So you may remember again that that delegation was sent. And in the words that are given, this is in Numbers chapter 13, the 10 spies, which actually becomes Christianese for people who have very little faith. Uh, people will call, I've sat in meetings before where somebody will go, oh yeah, they're, they're the 10 spies. They're, those are the people that, that, that have no faith, they have no courage, they're just worried all the time about things, okay? Joshua is really about that, that, that picture of we can do this, if God is with us, then nobody can stand against us kind of way of looking at the world. Now that doesn't make it easy, it just gives you the courage to do what God has called you to do. So the 10 spies had said, they're stronger than we are. That's literally what they say. And they start spreading a bad report about what they saw throughout the Israelite nation to the point everybody panics and they kind of want to kill Moses and, and, and chaos ensues. But Joshua says, don't be afraid. God's with us. His name is changed by Moses. Joshua's original name was Hoshea. He saves. And then Moses changes his name to Joshua. The Lord saves. So we go from ambiguity. He, whoever he is, saves. To the Lord saves. God is here to save his people. And so Joshua becomes this vehicle of deliverance of God's people from uh, this wilderness period. You may remember at the end of Moses because they sin against God. They have to wait 40 years before they can go into the promised land. Joshua is the one who's tasked at the end of Moses' life with leading them into the promised land. Quite a task. When Moses dies, Joshua is picked by God to succeed Moses, one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world, and he commissions him. So we're going to read Joshua 1. 1 to 11 together. It's on the screens for you as well. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, and he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land I'm giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you will be on land I have given you. From the Negev wilderness to the south, to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east, the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites. Now listen to this. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful 
to obey the instructions Moses gave you. Don't deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left, and then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua then commanded the officers of Israel, go through the camp and tell the people to get their provisions ready. In three days you will cross the Jordan River and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, so there you go. The commissioning of Joshua. He's told, get the people together. I will do for you what I did for Moses. Well, what's that? I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Every place you put your foot will belong to you. But make sure that you walk in obedience. He says, take the book of the law. Dwell on it. Think about it. Obey it. And if you do, I will be with you. Be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. But not just like some matter of willpower. There's a very, very important little clause in there. For the Lord goes with you. Now, if the Lord doesn't go with you, then you should be terrified. But if the Lord is with you, then nobody can stand against you. So that call to be strong and courageous and don't be afraid comes three times in that one little chunk. God's called him to this huge task, and he offers his presence, the presence of God. That's the key to strength and courage. After the golden calf incident, God says he's going to be faithful and take them there to the promised land. But he won't, go, he won't go with them because God at this point, this is back in the time of Moses again, he says, I'm not going to go with you. This is Exodus chapter 33. And he says, uh, I can't go with you anymore because I'm afraid if I spend basically 10 more minutes in your presence, I'm just going to torch you. And so he says, it's better if you go. I'll stay here. Y'all go. And Moses stops him right there. And he goes, God, if you're not going to go with us, we're not going forward. We won't go forward. He says, if you don't personally go with us, we will not leave this place. Exodus 33:15. Okay, that's the heart that brings courage. See, Moses understands that God's presence is everything. So if we go forward with God, we can't be defeated. If we go forward without God, we can't win. Let that sink in for a second. And whatever it is that you're fighting right now. See, it's still God's presence that means everything. See, people often think that God is going to bless whatever they do. I sign up for Christianity. God's job then is to make sure that I don't have any problems. That my agenda gets passed fully. Uh, that, there isn't a, uh, that there isn't some moment in time when uh, I have to suffer. I have to, do, I have to suffer a defeat. I do anything like that. My job, basically, I give God my, my hat tip like so. And his job then is to pass my agenda and see it fulfilled. That's not the way the Bible sees it. The Bible sees it as no. Your job is obedience. God will handle results. You handle obedience, God handles results. So if you will go with God and God is with you, then whatever he asks you to do, you'll be able to do. Now, Henry Ford, the guy who made cars, uh, the father of the modern automobile, you know, he once said that uh, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would say faster horses, you know. Uh, Christians go, hey, what, uh, God, they get on their knees and they pray basically for less challenges. God, take away the trouble. 
Take away the pain. Take away the this. Take away the that. Right? Asking kind of for the wrong thing. Just a better version of the ordinary life we supposedly transferred out of when we became Christians. Take away the challenges. Take away the pain. Let me see what you're getting ready to do. When in reality, when you learn from the ministry of Moses, do you remember how the Israelites knew where to go every day? God gave them a five-year strategic plan, right? No. They woke up in the day and they looked where the pillar of cloud and fire were, and they went. In Joshua, it's not much different. Joshua wakes up and he says, now I want you to go over there to I and go fight them. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to fight this way. I want you to keep this, get rid of that. End of story. Next day, wake up. Okay, now I want you to go fight those people. Okay, and it's a daily thing. You remember how they got their food in the wilderness? You got a long menu to pick from, right? <laughs> a very strategic nutrition plan. No, they counted on God for manna every day. They woke up and it would be on the ground. And it's spoiled after a day. Because there's something God understands about us that, that without that kind of reliance and that dependence on the presence of God, we end up behaving in all sorts of crazy ways. There's a reason that Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's Prayer, says, give us this day our daily bread rather than a big long-term nutrition plan for whatever, or give us 50 years worth of food. There's something about the ability to depend on God and on the presence of God that keeps us anchored, it keeps us rooted, and because we understand at a, on a daily basis whether or not God is for us or not. That's one of the things it does. If I wake up and there's no man on the ground, well, I know that so we may have a problem. And what Joshua learns is that the presence of God isn't something that can be taken for granted, not just by him, but by anybody in Israel. There's a story, we'll do a full-length sermon on it when the time comes, there's a little country called Ai. They should have been able to whip them easily in battle, and instead they get their tail kicked because one person among them had kept hung on to some stuff from the treasury that, that they shouldn't have. It alters the entire course of what is going on. So as we do this, we, what we want to do is learn the discipline of not asking God essentially for faster horses, if that makes sense. Not less trials, not less this. Not Give us your presence. If your presence goes with us, Lord, we'll be fine. But if that's gone, then even something basic with less challenges can take us out. So Joshua is given the promise of God's presence. He's given directions, essentially, for that day. And that's really about it. And overall, his story reminds us that if we want to be blessed, we walk according to his will. He says, Joshua, you take the word, you take the book that Moses gave you, and you meditate on it, and you think about it, and you dwell on it, and then you do it. You obey it. God's people are, by nature, strong and courageous because of his presence. The early church father, Tertullian, said, The Lord challenges us to suffer persecutions and to confess him. He wants those who belong to him to be brave and fearless. He himself shows how weakness of the flesh is overcome by the courage of the Spirit. This is the testimony of the apostles, and in particular, uh, the rep uh, in particular of the representative administrating spirit. The Christian is fearless. The Christian is fearless. Why? Because God is with them. They're not recklessly out there. They're not evil Knievel trying to do some death-defying trick. No, they know they're called, and they know that the one who's got all the armies of heaven at his disposal goes with them wherever they go. 
And so I know if, if God has called me to do this and I walk in obedience to God, things will be okay. Does it mean that every moment of every day is going to be a zippity-doo-dah happy moment? No, it does not. But what it does mean is I'm walking in victory on a daily basis because I know the battle's already mine. Courage comes, sisters and brothers, from knowing that God is with us. That's why God repeatedly commands Joshua to be strong and courageous. This I command you, be strong and courageous. Well, how am I supposed to do that? God goes with you. God goes with you. Courage is a much more spiritual issue than people think. Courage is not really an option in Scripture. It actually very much goes to the root of faith and whether we have it or not. Revelation 21.8 gives us a laundry list of people who are kind of bound up and thrown into a lake of fire at the end of time. It's kind of a really depressing, non-inspirational text. But in there, as you go through and you look at all the, the, the laundry list of vices there, right in the middle is cowards. Cowards? You mean to be a coward isn't viewed as a positive thing by God. To put it mildly, no, it's viewed as a, a judgment on God's ability to, to be powerful. It's a lack of faith that demonstrates all of those things. Strength and courage come from God and His presence. And cowardice, kind of the way it's viewed through the lens of the book of Joshua particularly, you can certainly see it in Exodus as well, it betrays a lack of faith and often leads us to give away battleground to the enemy rather than fight. Let me ask you this. Is there anything that you've ever struggled with in your life, a temptation, a sin, anything like that, that at some point you just got tired of fighting it that day and you, so you just gave up and you let it happen? It happens all the time, sisters and brothers, in the lives of Christians. And because we do that, then guess what? Then God, God has to withdraw. So he starts, he starts saying, okay, have it your way. And we end up with the battle of I again, like Joshua and those folks, and we end up suffering defeats rather than being able to say, no, 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 I know that God has called me to do this, that God will give me the strength to do this, and so I'm going to do everything in my power. I'm going to fight and fight and fight and fight. I'm going to be courageous. I can beat this in the name of Jesus. I'm going to do whatever I need to do, take whatever steps I need to take to fight. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember the old Saturday Night Lives where they used to have this little segment in there called Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. Uh, it was my favorite part, actually, of the old ones. Where it was like it was like scrolling words, a cheesy soundtrack, and and the words would scroll by, and they were like these random thoughts that were funny. He wrote a book called Fuzzy Memories, and in it he tells a story of getting bullied at school. And uh, so he writes, he says, uh, uh, "There was a bully who demanded my lunch money every day when I was a child." And he goes on, and he talks about how much smaller he was than the bully. He says, then I decided to fight back. So I started taking karate lessons. But the instructor wanted $5 a lesson. And that was a lot of money. So I found it was just cheaper to pay the bully, so I gave up karate. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that, though, kind of the way it works? In the realm of the spirit, you, you start fighting, and then all of a sudden you realize at one point, you know, it's easier just to let the bully have my lunch. And you do it the next day, 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 and the next thing you know, you haven't eaten in a long time. And you've gotten into this discipline of whenever you meet an enemy, whenever you meet the enemy in battle, you just simply say, oh no, they're too strong for us, essentially. We become the ten spies again. It's just easier, it's cheaper. 
It's less costly to do that rather than recognizing, no, if God's called me into this particular battle, he's going to give me victory if I go with him. If he's with me, I can't be defeated. I can't be defeated. So many people live in such a way that they decide to simply just pay the bully instead of learning how to fight and being strong and being courageous. And that, again, comes really just from having the presence of God at your disposal. If you want to write something down, here's one way to put it. Obedience brings courage, and courage brings obedience. Let me unpack that for a second. Obedience brings courage because it means God goes with you. If I was, let's say, walking down a back alley here in Escondido, bad time night, 2 o'clock in the morning, all the bars are emptying out into the streets. Uh, Every weirdo in our city is out walking around half drunk or completely and utterly drunk. And I'm by myself, and they're walking in packs. I feel one way. Now, if I happen to be walking down that aisle, and I know that I've got four or five MMA fighters walking alongside me, then I experience it differently, don't I? I feel very different. In fact, you almost want to fight, right? It's like, yeah, bring it, dude. Bring it, bring it, bring it. Let's do this. Let's do, let them do this. That's what you're thinking. <laughs> but but you, you walk with boldness because who's with you, right? You're not afraid. I mean, can you imagine a life where you weren't afraid? Oh, no, what's going to happen? See, obedience is kind of that key to letting us know that, 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 that God is with us. It doesn't mean that if you sin at any point in any day that God fully withdraws his blessing. It's not that. It's not that, oh, you know, whatever, transactional. It's not that. But it's being able to walk in victory on a daily basis knowing that God honors obedience. So if he says to me, Tim, uh, I want you to honor me by living in this way, and I decide to live that way. I don't need to hold my breath waiting for God's blessing. Because I made the decision to go my own way, and God might come with me, and he might not, but I'm going to go ahead and fight the battle myself. So obedience brings courage by reminding me that God goes with me. And because God goes with me, I'm not afraid. And so I act faithfully, and that brings obedience. So they're synergistic. They go in a circle. My, the obedience that I have before God, I'm walking, in, I'm walking in the life and in the way that God wants me to. I know God is with me, therefore I'm courageous. And because I'm courageous and strong, I don't, sh- I don't l- just pay the bully my money and run away. I'm able to be faithful because God goes with me. And so Joshua is kind of in that, in that way of, of looking at things. Just It's a beautiful spiritual truth. That simply says God's presence is everything. So, so if God goes with me, then I can be, oh, the lights went out. Holy Spirit came in the room. Oh, he's back. Good. All right. So uh, Holy Spirit's back. In, no, now he flashed at me. We'll figure it out. I've preached through all sorts of stuff over the years. We're going to be just fine. So here we go. Uh, because God makes us brave, we fight the battle that's before us, and we fight it in a way that honors the Lord. Amen. Being ready for anything, sisters and brothers, is better than knowing everything. Being ready for anything is better than knowing everything. God doesn't tell Joshua what lies ahead or provide a plan for him. He doesn't give him many long-term instructions at all until they are at the very wall of the promised land. Then he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get that. I want you to get the horn, the trumpet, whatever. I want you to march around this way. And I want you to do it for this long. And he gives them some specific instructions. Until then, it's pretty stinking day-to-day ambiguous. It's just, Joshua, okay, today, here's today's assignment. Boom. And there he goes. 
wouldn't it be better for him to know? I mean, we always assume that, you know, knowledge is power or whatever. Well, sometimes knowledge is our enemy. It gets us focused more on our own logic, which is not bad. I'm a fan of logic, okay? Using the brain that God gave us. But the presence of God is really where the game is won and lost. It's what allows us to run into battle with confidence. Uh, I spent this last week taking a class in New York, and the professor was a gentlemanly fellow, 81 years old, been teaching there forever. It was a class on strategy. So in the first 10 minutes, he asked the class their first question. Here's what it was. I want you to picture this bald 81-year-old guy, typical professor, tweed jacket, you know, British accent. He's from South Africa, but he'd been a Rhodes Scholar. So he, was, he had the Oxford accent. And he goes, class, I have a question for you. Why are there brakes on cars? I go, that's what I flew all the way out here for, that question. <laughs> So, of course, my hand goes in the air. So you can slow down. Wrong. (laughs) Okay. Everybody else raises their hand. Uh, So that the defibrillator and the... So people try to get mechanical. All the engineers in the room start going that direction. Wrong, he says. He's got his little half-filled cup of coffee in his hand. Stares kind of diagonally into the ground the whole week. So you can go faster. And I go, I was thinking in my head, wrong. You know? <laughs> but he was right. He says, do you know how slow you, could, you would have to drive if you didn't have any brakes? And I kind of sat there and I go, all right. And by the time the week was over, he'd kind of illustrated his point. I go, he's exactly right. Brakes aren't there so you can slow down. They're there so you can go fast. So you can drive 100 and not kill everybody in the car. You would, you'd have to drive at one mile an hour and be able to like drag your foot outside to stop the car, right? That, that's what he got and why people understood, hey, if we want to be able to travel faster, we have to put brakes on the car. We have to find a way to stop the car when it happens. I think we get confused, okay, in the realm of the spirit. We think that obedience to God takes us off agenda. It makes us slower. When God's agenda and his presence is what's supposed to make us go faster. Does that make sense? It's there so you can live in a victorious way. So that you can go into battle confidently. That you're not sitting there and every time, you know, you hear something rustle in the bushes. You know that little feeling you get. Most people, when there's a rustle in the bushes, you just react. You you know, you're worried, you're jumpy. Who wants to live that way? God doesn't want us to live that way. So he comes to Joshua and he says, listen... If you will do this, my presence will go with you and you will be victorious in everything you do. Every ground that you put your foot on will be yours. If I go with you, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid for I go with you wherever you go. And that allows him to wherever he goes, wherever he goes. He's confident. Oh, you want me to go fight? I Okay, guys, let's go. And they go. Ooh, we lost that one. Why? Well, God didn't go with you. Okay, all the other ones, including the big battle of Jericho against these huge people that nobody thought he could beat, 
It goes swimmingly. How can you just fight battle after battle after battle and be victorious? You can when God is with you. But boy, I've got to put if he's not. What a mess. And I, I do think this, just having walked with many of you over the years and, and being a pastor for as long as I have, I, th- I do think that part of it is the expectations that we have for how life is going to go. And we try to get certain, we think certainty is our friend rather than readiness. Does that make sense? Like, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I know we have some engineers in the room, so I decided I would put this on a graph for you, all right? Um, so take dating for an example, all right? Uh, here we have a slide. Uh, this is how a young person often sees dating, right? I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and uh, therefore, they're going to be my soulmate for life. Point A to point B, straight line. Now, I have the, a graph of the actual dating life of a normal person. Let's go ahead and put that on the screen here. Okay, that's what it actually looks like for most people. Okay, so if you're 18, 19, 20 years old, uh, and so if you're expecting that it's going to go from right here to right there, you think God's not faithful, right? Because your expectation's been blown up. But what if God never promised that to begin with? Why are we holding him accountable for not fulfilling promises he never made? And what he says is, wherever you go, I will be with you. Now, for a lot of people, we're the ones that mess things up and other things, and that's why our graph looks the way it does. Yeah, you're going to find the, you know, unicorns out there that go from point A to point B in their dating life or whatever, but I'm also going to say, for most of us, that's how faith looks. That's how the faith graph looks, too. It's not, I became a Christian, and I went to heaven. We left Egypt, and we entered the promised land. It looks like that. I mean, go, go look in the back of your Bible someday, a map of the Israelites in the wilderness. They still can't piece it all together, but the parts they can piece together, you can look, and there's a tiny little A to B route from Egypt to Jericho. It's not that hard. Like you go, they probably could have made it in a month on foot, just right there. Instead, 40 years, they're in the wilderness, and it's all, it looks like that. It's, they're all over the place doing all sorts of things. Because God's not done with them yet. And all sorts of things happen out there. When God is with them, they're awesome. They're mighty in battle. They walk through the Red Sea getting parted in front of them. And then they divorce God, essentially. They start worshiping the golden calf, and then things get weird. Same people. But it's the difference between having God with you and not having God with you. And I would suggest to you, sisters and brothers, that if you're considering becoming a Christian, or you have been, or talk to anybody who's been in the faith a while. The wilderness in which we live, from the time that God set us free when we became Christians to the great promised land that awaits us one day, that's the map right there. And you just want to make sure that wherever we go, whatever battle lies in front of us, I want God with me. And the good news is, God wants us to be with you. This isn't something he does begrudgingly. He wants to be with us to the point that he sent his own son, who by the name, you know what his name was in Hebrew? Joshua. So that he's with us. 
You know, we learned it on 9-11. We can be at war without knowing it. But we sometimes forget that each woman and each man here is enlisted in an army of sorts that has been commissioned not to fight against flesh and blood, but against the darkness of the age we're in. And that will take courage. Courage in battle. And faith that God, the divine warrior, goes with us wherever we go. We can learn a lot about some of Satan's strategies in spiritual warfare by taking a look at some of the military strategies that have been used by others. There's a whole field of war called psychops, playing with people's mind. Satan's a master psychops guy. Alexander the Great was one of the early psychops people, and so sometimes he didn't always win battles. He often won battles, and sometimes he won them in a very unconventional way. His armies would be in retreat against a superior foe, and they always carried with them some helmets and breastplates that had been sized for people that were eight or nine feet tall. Now, none of them were that tall, none of them were that large. But they would take them, and as they fled, they would just drop them on the ground as they went, so that when the armies that were chasing them came upon them, they thought that's the size of these people. And they would often retreat, thinking, I don't want to fight anybody that big. Psychops, right? This is a, an important lesson for us, sisters and brothers, right? That strength and courage doesn't come from having a small enemy. It comes from having a big God, right? Amen. Now, I hope this is helping somebody. It helped me this week. I'll tell you what. To know that sometimes what I see and I go, oh, we'll never be able to do that. There's no way the church could do that. There's no way I could do that. There's nothing. No way. No how. Oh, no. Uh-oh. I'm going to bail. That that little feeling sometimes is just Satan throwing empty helmets on the ground. Right. I could easily take that ground if I thought God was with me and if I thought God was big enough to help me. Right. So let me ask you something. Think through your life right now. Do some, some, some exploration of yourself, the way that you think, the way that you feel things, the way the battles you know you're fighting right now. Yep. And I want you to hear that again. And, and insert your own name there if you need to. Okay? But God wants you, sister and brother, to be strong and courageous, not just empty stuff, but because he goes with you wherever you go. I don't know what the giants are in your life, I don't know what the giants are that are keeping you, you know, running away from the battle. Because you take a peek over the fence and you go, oh, they're huge. There's no way we'll be able to take that. And so you just run away. But maybe this is the day that changes. I think that's what God wants. Maybe this is the day that that, that battle gets won. So it probably won't happen if he's not with you. So how do you be strong and courageous? It takes an awareness of the presence of God. It takes the strength and the courage that God's presence provides to live faithfully today and in the days ahead. When battles come, you go into them believing that God will give you the victory, that wherever your foot lands, that land will be yours as long as God is with you. Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. We're not greater than our masters, so we can believe that we will do battle in this world. But by faith, if God is on our side, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, the anger of the enemy would have swallowed us alive. But he is. So we say, 
Thank you, Lord, for being on our side. At this time, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Um, next week, we get to learn everything we can from Rahab the prostitute. The Bible has unlikely heroes sometimes. Um, and so we're now gathering to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus, Yeshua. And I ask that you join me now as we think about the deliverance that God provided us through him. Let us pray.